Let us pray. Father God, for this word to be effectual, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. And so please pour out your power upon this place. Allow this word to bless us and bless our walk and guide us in wisdom and direct our paths. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want to warn right off the bat, this is one of those sermons where, you know, normally I, I try to kind of march verse through verse, and, and yet we're going to spend most of our time here at the very beginning of this reading, at the very beginning of this passage. We are in one sense going to just do a big cannonball into the pool, plunging into this passage that begins with politics. Yes, politics, more specifically a political authority and how we as a church community are to engage our political authorities. And so rather quickly, we find ourselves in the deep end of the pool in modern America. It's a topic that has continued to grow more and more toxic within our culture, within our time periods of our lives, especially the last two years, there has been a lot of debate on the First Amendment and church and state. And to broach the, even to broach the idea of politics, the topic of politics, in one sense is fairly foolhardy. Because all of you have your political kind of leanings and bias, even though uh, there is a common kind of pretended neutrality to politics. We, we like to envision Lady Justice with the blindfold over her eyes. It really doesn't, it's not really true. We come in with fairly strong opinions and some of us, maybe even we require our blood pressure medication when we see what's going on in politics and what our political authorities are doing. And so we splash down with a cannonball in the deep end of the pool in Titus chapter three, especially focusing on verses one and two with the apostle Paul telling a young pastor, Titus in Crete, remind them, this being the congregation, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of, to no, of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Remind them, the apostle said, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And we just read that, and quite likely, I would say this is one of the most misunderstood texts of the Bible in our present moment. And unlike other texts that people love to misunderstand, I think a great many people have misunderstood texts like this one, trying to genuinely remain biblically faithful. I really do. There are plenty of things that godless people will try to defend a Christian believing, you know, the big topics, the topics like in terms of marriage and sexuality and topics like respecting people of all ethnic groups, topics like abortion, that really you cannot truly create within the text of scripture an argument to believe as you do. No, you need 
you need a philosophy and you need kind of personal feelings in order to subvert what the Bible makes clear. I don't think this is a passage, on the other hand, that is misunderstood in the same kind of way. I think a lot of people get this passage wrong, not because they want to get it wrong or, or not liking what God has to say about this passage, but they haven't really thought through the greater corpus of Scripture to understand what's actually being said here and what's not being said here. And why I point this out is because I think we need to have charity for people who might first look at this verse and come to believe certain things about this text. A lot of Christians have decided to believe that these words that begin Titus chapter 3 and other places of the Bible mean that we must first make sure to know what's going on in Harrisburg and what's going on in Washington, D.C., what they've ruled on during the week before we decide how we are going to be the church from Sunday to Sunday. That's not actually what the letter is saying. However, on the bare surface, I can admit it seems like what the letter is implying. Yet you only need to read, for instance, the Christmas story to see Joseph and Mary subverting their political leader's actions. In or, and if they hadn't, we wouldn't have a Christmas story. And to know that there's actually more involved here. And even the writer to Titus was who? It was Paul. How does Paul die? Paul dies because he resisted the political demands of Rome. He's a Roman citizen who was struck down by the sword because there were things that he would not compromise on. He categorically refused to concede to the state. There are plenty of other places to go. I won't belabor them. We could go through the book of Acts. We could go to the midwives in the book of Exodus. We could go to the prophets and elsewhere to find faithful people resisting political power all over the Bible. It's sort of, when you look at it, when you really make a habit to look at it in the Bible, it's sort of like finding black spots on a Dalmatian. It's not all that hard. There are even eschatological problems, end times kind of problems, with blindly obeying the state in all circumstances. For instance, Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, depending on your theological view, tells one of three things. Everybody falls in one of three camps. Either of a time in the past, Satan uniquely deceived the nations, or is foretelling of a time where Satan will be released to deceive the nations uniquely in the future, or really a combination of both those views, that Satan has a pattern of deceiving the nations throughout this era of the Christian church. And yet, a lot of what Christians have read on the surface of Titus 3 verse 1 would require that if even if such a moment were to occur, when a government has handed itself over to Satan, we'd have to say, oh, well, I guess it's a little bit like Simon says, I got to obey them and be subject to the rulers in all things. That's not what Titus, Paul is saying here to Titus. That's not an idea that can be sustained by looking at the whole canon of Scripture. That's an oversimplification of this text that is a problem. 
This is not a passage where God is telling us to blindly follow rulers and authorities as if, again, we are playing a game of Simon Says. Now, there's another principle I want to push back on, and it comes to the subject of our, the rulers and authorities. Here we are, we are Americans. And this is a civics lesson, but a civics lesson that has application with this passage. What is our guiding authority as Americans? It's the Constitution and Bill of Rights. That is the covenant document. That is the terms of agreement of this nation. A, a wonderful document. We are the oldest constitutional republic still active in world history as of this moment. We are trying our best to undo that, but actively we are still the oldest constitutional republic in the world. That is the terms of agreement and the authority that we submit to. And that's a wonderful thing for us as Christians because this document is a precious document that gives us freedoms and liberties from the state in regards to what we do here and our worship and practice and faith and practice in him. It gives us a, a, an authority in which we can stand on even if leaders and rulers would tell us to do other. You know, my wife and I, we just got a car. We signed a, an agreement to, to, you know, to make the payments, to officially own the car. We've got to get the van sold so we can help pay for the car. But, you know, if Red Hill Ford Auto came to our house on Monday morning, hey, I, we know you signed the contract. But we decided we're going to up the interest rate 15%. No, that's not the terms of the agreement. That's not the binding authoritative document. You have no power to suggest that. And we would be right in resisting that. Just as if we knocked on Red Hill's door, we decided we're only going to make 12 payments. You know, we're not going to do this four-year thing. We're just going to make 12, year, 12 months of payments. The Constitution is our binding authority. Uh, you know, maybe this is a little bit more of the undergrad political science major Kevin coming out, but he has driven me crazy. How many Americans and how many Christians? Because we do not want to lose the binding covenant document that established this nation. Even Thomas Jefferson, he warned, once we lose that, we, we've really lost it. We don't want to lose that binding authority and respecting that authority. And we don't do our country any favors when we ignore it. Actually, when we do not honor it, when we do not uphold it, we are in violation of that document. And so we do not submit. We are not a monarchy. We do not submit in final authority to the decrees of Harrisburg or the decrees of D.C., especially in regards to matters of worship, we submit to the Constitution. This is a key distinction to be aware of. So end of civics lesson. Now something else for us to consider and chew on. Titus 3.1 is hinting 
to the fact that at the forefront of the Christian life is not for us to focus and to be focus on the rise and fall of political systems. We Christians often struggle with this one. Jesus doesn't say, for instance, at the end of Matthew, after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so let's go make Rome great again. Or all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so I'm going to create an ancient version of the alliance of NATO and try to prevent Roman chariots from marching into the Holy Land. Or stop paying taxes to Caesar. No, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Even in that statement, that final commandment of Jesus before he ascends into heaven, there is this realization that we are not to be of one nation. We are to be a people gathering the nations because our goal is not to witness either the rise or fall of a specific political system within the nations we do dwell, but to see souls brought into the saving reign of the kingdom of Christ and spied so doing change the world. Jesus could have asked for us to be political activists. I mean, that's what Muhammad did with Islam. He came up with the worldly idea of how I expand this religion is by political power, even political power at the edge of the sword. Christ, on the other hand, as can be seen rather clearly, for instance, in chapters of the Bible, such as John 18, before Pilate and other authorities in Jerusalem, could frankly dismiss putting human political powers at the forefront of redemption. Why? While the purposes of his kingdom do have an interplay with politics, that's undeniable. And his people are never called to be afraid in going before such political leaders. His kingdom will primarily be established, not ultimately by political laws and legislation, but by freeing those once exiled from God due to their sin. And yet, as I say that, we can't dismiss government altogether as worldly. Government is actually established by God in Genesis chapter 9. Actually, I was very surprised. I was talking to Rob and Bruce before the sermon. I was surprised we went from the Adamic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. We missed the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9 and so jumping in the back of the uh, Bible. But that section of Scripture helps establish uh, government for us. And, and God explains why he established government. The time before the flood was such a chaotic time that God gives government to us in order to prevent utter chaos and to allow for human flourishing. It's a gift from God, so we can't completely malign it. We're not allowed to entirely dismiss it. And yet, also clear in Scripture is the fact that governments are ultimately tied into the redemptive plan of God. In one sense, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 15 is helpful for us 
to understand the role of nations in God's larger redemptive story. The Savior uses them. Our Lord uses them. And yet, ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, the political powers are a drop in the bucket when compared to the sovereign plan of God. So governments do have roles to play in God's grand story of redemption. They are a gift from God. And uh, ultimately, they will be used by God. And we see this truth both in the Old Testament and you and new. God will use the stories of nations and government to tell and overlap his superior story and eternal story of redemption and salvation. Because ultimately, we know that Christ has a greater authority. He has all authority. And while we might not always be able to understand the political tea leaves of our moment, we are called to patiently allow our Lord's story of redemption to play out and boldly declare, not my will, but yours, Lord. And so we are called to live, politically speaking, with the wisdom of Christ, noticing that our Lord wisely navigated this very question in his lifetime. Politics were always at the ready to attack Jesus, as we just earlier discussed. Even in his infancy, they were ready to attack him. And yet he had never allowed politics to subvert his grander biblical mission. He never allowed for his opposition to stop him or silence him preemptively. Only at the appointed hour and time did he allow himself to be betrayed, in part because of the political edifice of. Jerusalem at that time. In one sense, Jesus was like this great boxer, ducking and weaving at times within the Gospels to avoid the political powers that wanted to undo him. He would not let the politics of his day undo the larger mission of grace to the rich and poor, to the powerful and powerless, to men, women, and children, to the handicapped and able, to all hues, to Greeks and Jews. The list goes on. He didn't try to pass laws to make Jerusalem great again with the Sanhedrin. He didn't try to broker a peace with Rome so they would never march their chariots into the Holy Land. He had a humility about him and a driven focus that never ignored politics, but also never let politics entirely rule over his mission. And we would be wise to remember the wisdom of how Christ walked. I thought about Billy Graham as I considered this, and I've been reading a couple biographies on his lifetime and such, and, and sympathetic biographies to him. But it was, it's rather remarkable um, that the biographies kind of account for the fact that if there, there was a flaw in Billy Graham's ministry, at times he, he was so politically minded that he compromised at times that really the Bible does not encourage us compromise. And even the fact is, though, even through those arrangements, Billy Graham was able to reach places and people he would have never been allowed to reach. And yet, is the lasting impact of Billy Graham, those political connections, the fact that he was close friends with Nixon, for instance, was, is that his lasting impact? No. The lasting impact is the saving message of grace that he was a herald of, and for all those who had a spirit-given gift of salvation provided to them, in part, 
through the preaching of Billy Graham. That's his real impact on the kingdom of God. That's his great uh, contribution. Because those individuals are now citizens of a new nation in heaven above. The nation whose call is for others to join it by repentance. Because that saving kingdom has come through Jesus Christ. Our contribution to society as Christians is not defined by a specific political movement or to entirely disengage from politics. But the instruction of these early verses is expect at times to be criticized in the political realm. And if we are going to be criticized, that means we're part of the discussion, but still follow the laws we can in wisdom and do not return evil for evil. And we are called to be godly citizens to such a degree that much like Jesus, or even much like the writer of this letter, Paul, the state really can't charge you with a valid crime. Live in such a way that they would have to make up a fiction in order to condemn you and so judge you. All around the world today, in places like Pakistan and China and Iran and elsewhere, the principle of that wisdom is lived out in ways we do not yet know as Christians in America. And yet, even when they live in that wisdom, as those countries often lead in martyrdom, India as well, for the church, the principle of that wisdom, just like it did not alleviate the realities of the death of Christ or the death of Paul, won't mean that you're protected from all harm from the state. But it is a principle of wisdom that is at the forefront here. So be submissive to rulers and authorities still knowing God's plan was never for worldly governments to be at the heart of our mission. While we want to... And yet, it's a hard thing for us to believe. Because we believe to really move the needle in this country, we have to change politics. I was just thinking about this this week at, at Debbie's funeral. Here we have Pastor Ford, and he, he was articulating the gospel. And uh, Pastor Ford, I believe, is older than our, our current president by, by a notable few years. And I was thinking about how the contributions of a simple life, a faithful life, like a Pastor Ford, in the economy of heaven, offers eternally, far more impact than a godless president or any and all godless presidents added up. And if you don't believe that, it's out of lack of faith because God loves to use the simple things, simple faith in order to dramatically changed the world. Let's just think about when this letter was written. This letter was written in the apostolic time period. Christians don't hold any political power at this time, at the time of this letter. And yet, undeniably, by percentage of, of converts, by explosion, by growth, the most dramatic time of conversion in Christian church history was it when 
we held all the wheels of power. It was during the lifetime of an, the apostles that held a simple faith and lived a life that stood out in the midst of a pagan culture. In one sense, this letter to the island of Crete is a great illustration of what the Christian church is to be. We are islands of refuge, small communities gathered in a larger sea of paganism. And when we are faithful to the means of grace, to the, to the message of salvation, the gospel of truth that we have to share, amazing things happen through the power of God. Amazing things happen through the power of God. We, we want to believe that politics is how we are going to affect change in this country. I think of even the last 50 years in America, the, the idea for church growth was so much the idea of, let's get a lot of our biggest pastors, our most influential pastors into a room with our most influential politicians, and then it will really change the country. What's the fruit of that then? Is that how God and his word really laid out our mission of growth? Or even as we go further into the text here in Titus, when we look at verses like three through eight, it talks about the deeper struggles of our lives. The word here, God's word here in Titus says, we are foolish, we are disobedient, we are led astray, we are slaves to passion and pleasure, daily finding reasons to both be angered and envious, both hating people and being hated by others, that outside the grace of Christ, this is who we are. And no politician can fix that problem. That problem is beyond their pay grade. It's only the Christian gospel, the Christian message, that has a real opportunity to change things. And so we need to stop looking at the decline of American civilization and saying, oh, no, this is so terrible. No, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to have the advantages that the early church had to look odd to the world, to look different to the world, to, to, be, to intentionally go into the public square and we have a different, peculiar reality to us because we have been saved by the grace of God. We can both admit who we were in our former lives, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we can admit our current stubble, stumbles on the narrow path, that we still need his grace daily, that in one sense, it is only our sin we contribute to our salvation in this lifetime. And he just continues to be more and more generous with his grace. And, and yet we have a, a message of salvation. I learned actually in my study this week, something I, I never knew. First off, it was really two things. First off, when they read the ancient pagan texts of Rome, they loved the word salvation and saved and savior. They love to attribute it to, you know, I, I'm cured of gout. Praise Zeus, my savior. You know, I, I'm cured of this Ill, illness. 
Oh, the glory of Caesar be upon me. And, and he is such a wonderful savior and king. They, they kind of had this habit, sort of like growing up in San Diego in the 80s. Everything was dude, 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 that's awesome. Dude, dude, that's gnarly. Dude, dude. You could say dude in different ways and it conveyed different messages to us lame-brained Southern Californians. That was a little bit like Savior was in ancient Rome. Is that all that different? Do we attribute salvation maybe to wrong places even still in our own society? But what's, what really made an impact for me is there are three books in the Bible that more so than any other book constantly and consistently use that word, the, 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 the Greek derivative word of savior or saved or salvation. And they are Titus, first Timothy and second Timothy. These letters that Paul wrote to these young pastors and these congregations trying to encourage them on what they should be about and what we should be about as a congregation in the midst of, again, these islands of paganism that we find ourselves in. There's, there are no other, there's no other book of the Bible that matches those three in regards to this emphasis. And the reality is, and the irony is, here they were in a Roman culture that would credit salvation to all the wrong places. And Paul just keeps repeating basically to them, teach, teach, teach the reality that there is a greater eternal and fuller salvation, once and for all salvation that comes from Christ. And so that is the call of this passage this morning to not get distracted, to not get fooled, to not get led astray into making an idol out of politics, becoming the solution by which we can solve the world's problems. Now, it's far more personal than that. It's far more simple than that. It's far more uh, revolutionary than that. It's the grace of Christ. And the wonderful thing is, I think of how the world's going at this moment. And, and you know, we very much pre-COVID were a, a, a country of the mega church. And if I, I know the habit and passion of the God of scripture, it's going to be little places and little people and little moments of unashamed faith in which we have great opportunity for here at Old Goshenau, that God will bless in this current winter into a great harvest and a great springtime to come. You know, it's funny because in the previous denomination this church was in, it was a mainline denomination that continues to shrink because it, it has avoided the word of God. You know, they came alongside this church a little over a decade ago and they said, you know how you fix this church? Their consultant said, you got to get on the main road. You got to get on the main road. Knowing nothing about the power of God, knowing nothing about the idea of an actual church growth, an actual community of faith is an island. 
a faithful island, though, that in its oddity and its uniqueness draws in people who look at the world's solution, that looks at our political leaders and despair just like we despair, and they find a greater hope in the offer of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so let us continue to be a people not tempted to focus on lesser things and false gods, but let us be a people who through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ might not only be people who receive it, but people who share it with those throughout our community. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that within your son's story, and within the story of Scripture, you take little moments. You take moments like Abram leaving the land of Ur and, and going into Canaan. You, leave, you take simple moments of sending your son into the world in a way in which people did not take notice of him. You use little moments like this letter to the small church in Crete in order to inspire us with courage in the, in the moments that lay before us. Help us to understand that church growth comes through grace and mercy and love and a faithful proclamation of Scripture. It will not be accomplished through alliances with fallen leaders of this world. No, it will be accomplished with a deep connection to you. May we not only just enjoy the freedom that we have received in Christ Jesus, but may we share. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.